Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is Monty Hall and my guest today is... Uh, Lynn Sheriff, Master of Wine. Go on, tell us a bit about yourself. Your CV is longer than a Bible. Awards, claim, very varied career. Where are you from? I'm from Cape Town, South Africa, and I was, was born and raised there, went to school there. Wine background there? Uh, not at all. I was, I was born, I was actually almost born in a hotel, and both my parents were hoteliers. And then I studied hotel keeping with doing a practical for three years at a very prominent hotel in Seapoint called the Arthur Seat named after Arthur's seat in Scotland. Um, and it was run by a very stern, very good host, Swiss hotelier. And we were famous for banquets then with all the silver service and the Waterford crystal glasses and so on. Um, and we'd often run banquets, which went on till one or two in the morning. And then the reward for the five of us, the, the young management team, was that he'd open a bottle of wine at the end of it. And his cellar was something to be seen. It had to be seen to be believed. Uh, and he used to take out things like uh, we had a bottle of Chateau Margot once he opened a bottle of Krug he opened a bottle of Romney Conti once and I just I just I, I started to take then much more of an interest in, in wine and decided after three years in hotel keeping where I ran a, a hotel in Hermanus for him that actually I wanted to go into the wine business. So quite an idyllic life you're learning and you've got hotels working that are both on the coast, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So the next step, that what was your first big deep step into the wine industry? I enrolled at um, an agricultural college which falls under the University of Stellenbosch to study cellar technology. And again there, in year one, we spent part of the time in the vineyards. And in year two, I had two to three months in the cellar. And we actually were allocated two or three rows of the vineyard and we actually had to make our own wine. It was great fun. Okay, so that gave you a really good practical grounding in the mechanics of wine growing and wine making. Mm -hmm. What was the next step? The next step was uh, that I I wanted to go and study somewhere in Europe. Why? I just felt that I wanted the international perspective on, on wine. South Africa, of course, was very much in the old, terrible politics political system and I wanted to get out and, and, and experience wine making and wine growing somewhere else. So where was your first stop? My first stop was um, was Germany actually. In a, Interesting. In a, yeah. Well at that time that's not, that's, it's not really such a big leap. At that time all the technology in South Africa was stainless steel, cold ferment etc. You know that the Germans are very good at from a white wine. Filtration. Making perspective. Excellent filtration and so on and so forth to make really squeaky clean wines most white wines mostly without Right, so, and also with a bit of re residual sugar, and they didn't re-ferment in bottle, sterile filtration, all that sort of stuff. Exactly. So, next step? Next step was... I came back to South Africa and started work, working at a winery called Stellenbosch Farmers Winery, which today belongs to Destel. But that was one of the biggest wineries at that time, wasn't it? It was was the biggest at that time, yeah. But you were working on the production side or on the marketing and sales side? No, I was on the production side to begin with. A production and wine buying. We had a wine buying team of six, and each one was allocated a certain number of sellers to look after. And so you're buying bulk wines then? You're going and tasting bulk wines that could be blended to make a brand for a market? Yeah. Yeah. Was it quite egalitarian there in terms of the mix of employees between um, females and males? Or no. Were you the only lady? Uh, yes, I was the only lady in the wine buying team. How do they treat you? Oh, the wine buying guy was a total chauvinist and very short. And 
He said, nobody, no woman will ever become a permanent member of my wine buying team. So that was a red rag to a bull? Yeah. <laughs> or a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I worked there for three years and enjoyed it very much. And then I heard of um, a system which was being run by the French government, which recruited people from all walks of life in industry to have a year's bursary in France. And the idea then was to stimulate contact, commercial contact between France and various other countries over a very broad range of industry. Was this during the year of sanctions against South Africa when it was difficult to um, get out of the country? Or Well, it, it was never difficult to get out of the country. It was very difficult to get money out of the country. And it was all performance just to get travellers' checks, travellers' checks at that time. And it was between the years 85 and 86, which was some of the worst political years in South Africa's history. Um, there was stone throwing, there were tyres being thrown onto the highway and if anything it was a good time to be away from South Africa but it was constantly in the news in France I saw it all the time. So you were in France in what, 84, 85? 85, 86. Okay. And actually that was for me a real eye-opener. The way the system worked was they, you had to pay to get yourself there so you bought the single ticket with you know instructions from them that you were a guest of the French government um, so it was easy to get a visa and then you and then they paid to get you home. But what they did do was they covered all hotel, train, taxi, meal arrangements whilst you were there. And I was in France in all the different wine-growing regions for a year. And on my very first... So you were fact-finding, basically. Yeah. But it, it was, for them, probably a very good commercial investment because when I came back, I, I had decisions to influence uh, things like barrels, for example. And so we had been buying um, at Niederberg, for example, all our barrels from Germany or from Slovenia um, or from... Hungary and um, when I came back I said no 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 we've, we've got to look at French barrels and so we started working with all, all the barrel makers Demtos, Sigurd Maraud and so forth and so you know that the, well barrels today cost between six and nine hundred pounds, you know, or euros a, a piece. So it was a it was a, an investment certainly for Stellenbosch Farmers Winery and for France that paid off in my case. But I was there with some people from the dairy industry and you know. Yeah, it was farming in general. Wine was just part of the mix. Yes. Exactly. So what was the next step? Well, my very first. I mean, it was a, such an eye opener. My, my very first stop was Bordeaux, and um, my very first stop of the morning at nine thirty. I'll never forget it. Was at Chattamago and um, my friend, my lifelong friend, Dr. Paul Pontalier was my host. And it was the day that they were putting the Grand Vin together for the 83 vintage. The blending, yeah. And he had, at that at that time, they tasted with ISO glasses, those horrible little things. And he handed me a glass and said, right, this is what you have to do. Here's your paper to make your notes. This is the rest of the tasting team and nobody speaks until we reach the end of, you know, the and um, that was my introduction to the world of French wine. <laughs> I gained a lot of, the deep end. I, I gained a lot of knowledge and I also gained a lifelong friend who sadly is no longer with us. So that knowledge was like interpretation of tannin and things like that? Yes, uh, that was actually Paul's doctorate, was the, the behaviour of tannins and the management of tannins from harvest to to bottle. I learned a huge amount from him, and he became a partner to Stellenbosch Farmers Winery in a venture at Placier de Moir. Um, I think he did that for about 15 or 16 years. Yeah, he was a shareholder, wasn't he, in the business there? Um, he wasn't a shareholder, but we paid him a consultancy fee to, to come. He, he, he was a shareholder in a property 
poverty in Chile. And so he divided his time between France, Chile and South Africa. Okay, so you've got into Bordeaux, you're taking French ideas in terms of how to make red wine and and how to age them in terms of the barrel back to South Africa. Next step? Well, one of the other, I think, interesting things that I did was um, at that time, harvesting machines were forbidden in France. And I got to Champagne and there was actually at the same time a harvester being tested, a, a mechanical harvester being tested in Burgundy. And so the head winemaker of Mum Champagne took me to Burgundy in a helicopter um, so that they could go and see what was going on. I mean, it's just... It's, it's They're such like, cheapskates, aren't they? The <laughs> it was like being in a sweet shop, you know, like a child in a sweet shop with an array of things to choose from. It was extraordinary. And what was good, Monty, was I um, I spent time also in the lesser-known regions like Savoie, Jura, and so on. And so I really, I, I got to know the French wine industry backwards and I was I felt so privileged to be able to do that. Next step? Next step, I went back to South Africa. I worked in partly in production, but then I moved into marketing, marketing um, at at the Niederberg Wine Estate, and I was there till 1990, and then was was headhunted to go and open a wine academy in Hong Kong. The wine and Spirits wine Academy. Wine and Spirits Academy, um, and we were a service provider of the WSET. The Wine and Spirit Education Trust. Exactly. And, um, I so did, wine education is also running through your veins, isn't yes, it? it? Yes, it is. It's, it's one thing I really enjoy doing, and, and what's wonderful is to, to lecture to teach students who are there because they want to be there not because they're forced to be there they're paying their own money to come and you know listen and then write exams and so on so it was very stimulating so now your your principal activity I mean you have many strings to your bow but you're an educator uh, and independent wine consultant so you, you can educate people in the wine trade as well as um, about both the business side and the technical aspects so you're working with the Italian wine producers at the moment how does that work in terms of adding your experience what are they looking to get from you as someone who's had this incredible global experience in wine producers what are they asking you well I have at times worked with groups of producers and one of the the super groups I worked with is the Instituto Grandi Marchi um, and of course that consists of wineries like Gaia like uh, Lungarotti, like Antinori, and so forth. So it's a, well, it's a family of really well-known brands. Very well-known brands that, that stretches from Alto Adige all the way down to Sicily and everything in between. So that's a really stimulating environment to work in. And actually what was required from me at that point was to present masterclasses for them as an independent person um, in places like Hong Kong, Moscow, St. Petersburg, to follow a sort of a tour of what they were doing um, and give these independent masterclasses. And it was very easy because all, at one point there were, there were 15, I think they're now 17, but 17 top rate producers and to, sh- you know, to focus on their wines for sommeliers, for, you know, for people in the trade, for importers and so on. So it was, I mean, it was not a difficult job. So don't be bashful, but I mean, you're, you know, you're not just giving a tasting saying um, this wine smells of strawberries. You've got the technical knowledge behind it because you've worked so c- closely on the production side. And obviously you've got a global vision um, in terms of global markets. So what are the, what are the most frequent p- questions people ask you in those masterclasses? Are they confused about the native grape varieties? Uh, are they looking for more detail on the winemaking or the marketing? If we look at it from an Italian perspective, for example, one of the things that students um, confuse very often is Sangiovese with Tempranillo. And I, I kind of... Kind in a blind tasting. In a blind tasting. So Tempranillo is Spanish red grape, the main one that makes is uh, Rioja. Rioja. And, um, and the reason why they confuse them is that 
is that the way tannin and acid lie on the palate, you can sometimes muddle them up. Or if you've got a lot of tannin, it sometimes will mask the acidity. And so it was a mistake that I made when I was trying to do my master wine. I constantly mixed up, you know, Chianti and Tempranillo at the same price point or in the same price band. Um, until somebody said to me one day, you're confusing acidity with tannin. And, uh, and I realized that, yes, Tempranillo tends to be lower in acidity, quite a lot lower, and high in tannin, whereas Sangiovese and Nebbiolo are both high in tannin and high in acidity. So, you know, things like that. And I tell the students when I'm, when I'm I said, you know, it took me 18 months. Um, I kept confusing them just when I thought I had it right, I'd make the same mistake again. You know, so. it's nice that you do that, though, because, you know, there is this perception sometimes of not just masters of wine, but master sommeliers. We're all human, yeah. aren't we? Um, no, but absolutely. sometimes uh, a little bit of factual knowledge is not just opinion. It's actual kind of numbers on the on the an- analysis chart. So you probably that takes you back to your Pomp- Paul Pontalier days in Bordeaux. Mm, exactly. You know, wine is romantic and all the rest of it. But actually, it's it's you got to look at what's under the bonnet. Yes, absolutely. And um, I was I, I think Monty, I've been awfully lucky in my wine friendships and some of them go back to those days in France. Some of them go back to my days spent in, in Germany, where I met people like, you know, Paul Pontalier, like Etienne Hugo. In Alsace. In Alsace, like Pierre Tenori, also a very old friend. Um, and I've, he's, I've hosted him in South Africa. I've hosted him and his wife in South Africa. And then he, he subsequently brought each of his three daughters to South Africa. So, you know, um, yeah, and to sort of have have people like that, and Anna Gretre Gartner, sadly, also no longer with us, um, from the Mosel, and she gave me a real insight into how to recognize wines that were low in alcohol and high in acidity, um, and that was just fascinating too. And I, I just think I'm privileged to call all of these people friends. I don't, I don't mean friends in the American sense, I mean friends in the in the British sense or the European sense, if you like. Okay, so when you're hosting a masterclass, what are the most common questions you get asked on Italian wine? Why is it so complicated? The most common questions when, I, when I'm lecturing on Italian wines usually relate to acidity and tannin levels and also the fact that some of the grapes are quite obscure in international terms, like Alianico, you know, I think Alianico is only grown in Italy. I, I don't think I've ever seen one outside of Italy. And, you know, how to recognise those and what to look for. Um, one of the most common questions I'm asked in the master classes is, you know, what's your favourite wine? Which is, you know, I don't have a favourite wine. I have lots of favourite wines, plural, but not a favourite wine. I always say the last good wine I had with friends. Oh, that's a good one. That's new. Okay. I might pinch that from you. That's all right. It's not copyrighted. <laughs> uh, unless you make it into a T-shirt, in which case it probably oh, okay. <laughs> so what's the next step for you? Well, I've started to work with um, Stevie Kim at Finitaly International, Verona Fiera, and also Five Star Wines. So what is Five Star? Five Star Wines uh, has been made into a book and is... Um, it's a sort of competition, but it's evaluating wines in terms of the 100-point scale, um, and it's done by a panel, and everything is served blind, and those wines that rate over 90 points um, are then published in the book with all their details, and Venetia International takes them on their roadshows all over the globe to, to show people, um, you know, that this is a five-star wine. So it's mainly Italian wines that are being tasted. Yes. Um, if you look at the 2018 guide where the wines were tasted in April, I would say 85, maybe 90% is um, is a section dedicated to Italian wines. But there are also some from Romania, from Hungary, from Austria. And, you know, I would encourage producers who are direct neighbours 
you know, to take part in this competition. It's brilliant. The list of judges was, was quite amazing. And then, um, you know, to but to mainly encourage Italian producers to, you know, to take part so that they can get their wines better known in the countries they would like to be better known in, such as Russia. In China is, of course, a whole different ballgame, but, you know, definitely in Russia and other parts of Asia, um, because, um, you know, Venetoli, uh, Verona Fiera, they take this roadshow all over the all over the globe, really, and to the United States, which is a key market, too. So how's that developing, the, the states for Italian wine, or initiatives run by... So Verona Fieri is the company that owns... Uh, Vinitaly. Basically organises Vinitaly and other, other trade fairs on yes. sofas and things like that. And, yeah, and um, marble, beautiful marble fair they organise, too. And so they, part of the initiative for the marketing of Italian wine is, is as Linda's saying, is a blind tasting competition and masterclasses to really... Um, allow um, professionals in the trade, whether it's sommeliers or whatever, to learn and understand and get through the complexities of Italian wine. Do you find it a challenge when you're, I mean, you love educating, you were head of the Institute of Masters of Wine, weren't you? I don't know what your exact title was, was the... Chairman, chairman of the Institute. No, no, no no person. Really? Chairman, chairman. Oh, you've got to change that. (laughs) No, no, I was quite happy just to stick with chairman. I think chairperson sounds... Sounds strange. But how do you, do you change your register? when you, If you're talking to fellow masters of wine, you probably have one way of talking. And when you're talking to, say, slightly greener, younger students or soms or whatever it is, um, whether they're Italian or even from Australia or whatever, do you change the way you speak or do you, do you always speak in the same way so you don't confuse people? Or Well, one thing, one thing I try never to do is to talk down to students because I think that's a... That's a key mistake. For I, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I couldn't stand my viticultural professor at, at the wine school. He was a terrible communicator. He used to look at the floor most of the time. I think he was just shy. So he had all this knowledge and had no way of communicating. So I never took down to the students. But probably I do talk a different kind of language when I'm talking to fellow MWs, irrespective of their age, sex or background or whatever. Yeah, I suppose we sort of have a bit of a speak of our own, you know, and we sometimes you know, tease each other about being MWs and never forgetting um, that we shouldn't be too pompous. I think that's a really, really important part. Yeah, the MW um, joke book is is about half a page long, isn't it? It's never been a Christmas bestseller. No, no, it's not a Christmas bestseller. (laughs) Okay, so um, final question. What's your next project? Well, the next project is, is going to be 2019 Five Star Wines, and I'm going to spend some time after Wine to Wine um, with the with the five star team um, at the fair, uh, which is a business to business uh, trade event. Yes, that's one correct. Yeah, and um, and just sort of doing some planning and finalising the judges. And what I what I liked, what attracted me in the first place when Stevie came to talk to me about it, is the fact that she she gets international judges, and actually um, one of the ju- I'm hoping one of the judges will be a fellow South African who was born in Alto Adige. Uh, called John Platter, and the the irony of that is that he writes or has written in the past his own book called Platter Five Star, uh, the Platter Five Star Guide, or the Platter Platter Guide, and for South African wine. For yeah. South African wine, and they do an assessment of all the wines. He doesn't do that anymore. He sold it on, but he still comes down for the tasting of the the blind tasting of the five star wine. So. Stevie loved that. She loves stories, and especially if they're true. And so we're going to. Especially if they're true. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, but so I'm going to invite him, and he he had already indicated over the phone that he would be very very keen to come back to Italy. And so I'm hoping he's going to join us for the five star 
five-star wine tasting. So when you slow down and retire, are you going to go back to a little hotel on the side of the sea in South Africa? or? I think that's unlikely. The funny part is that I don't quite know where to call home. When I land in Cape Town and I can see Table Mountain, I feel like I've come home. But I, I have a 50% shareholding in a small house in in northern Tuscany, uh, just north of Luca, which is a beautiful part of the world. And when I'm there, I, th- I think I feel at home. Um, yeah, it's a different part of Tuscany. Luca's very much, it's Tuscany, but it's the very much the un-Tuscan part of Tuscany. It's it, it, very French-influenced. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if it's necessarily French-influenced, but it has a wonderful combination of Luca, the, the old town, and then, you know, surrounding mountains. The little and co- the sea. And the sea, and the little cottage we own is is, is at sort of 800 metres above sea level. So, um, you know, it's all, it's just beautiful nature. Nature's beautiful countryside. So I feel at home there too. And then the, to confuse the whole issue, when I go to um, Tokyo, where I work most summers for about three to four weeks, and the door opens, there's an, a bouquet or a smell or an aroma, which is, it comes from nowhere else in the world except from Tokyo. And I feel I feel very at home there. So. Do you get that same smell when you go into your house in Tuscany? Sort of musty... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it's a, it's a, it used to be an old shed, and it's been converted into a house by three architects. Well, you can hang some herbs in us. there. Hmm? You can hang some herbs in there, you know, typical Tuscan yes. herbs. You know, well, you have to, because yeah. it's got scorpions, so you have to put lavender or rosemary all over the house, which we do. Okay. So it smells of that rather than anything else. So Lynn Sheriff, Master of Wine and Pest Control Expert, thank you very much for coming in today to talk to the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is Monty Wallen. Thank you. Bye. Follow Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.